Perhaps the greatest gift any father can bestow upon his children, apart from the covenant blessings of parish life and a comprehension of the doctrines of grace, is a passion for reading. It is cheap, it consoles, it distracts, it excites, it gives a knowledge of the world, and it offers experience of a wide kind. Indeed, it is nothing less than a moral illumination. Thomas Chalmers, cited from Shelf Life by George and Karen Grant. Well, welcome back to Bright Hearth. My name is Brian Sauve, as usual, joined by my lovely wife, Lexi. Lexi, say hi to the people. Hello. Hello. You should have been here for the (laughs) amount of shenanigans that went on trying to record this introduction, that cold opening. A short one, too. (laughs) Every time I started, you know, Cyril's coughing on the other end of the door, then Lexi's stomach makes a loud gurgling noise, and then I was laughing. Anyway... In this episode, I intend to cost you a lot of money. (laughs) I know that Thomas Chalmers said that it's cheap, and, you know, I don't necessarily know if that's true, Chalmers. Today, we're we're in the library today. You know, we've been walking through the rooms of the house in this first season of Bright Hearth, and really asking of each room, what are the arts and disciplines of the productive Christian household, of domesticity, that the Lord would require of us and call us to in each room of the house. And so we're getting to the end of the house here, and uh, we, we only have a few episodes left in this season before we jump into season two. And in the next episode of Bright Hearth, I'm going to begin sharing with all of you the topic for season two and get you primed for it. But today, uh, one of these final rooms is the library. And, and, and we say it's a room in our house, even though... Do we have, have I not found the room in our house that is a giant, well-appointed, dedicated library? The whole house. Our whole house is a library, every guys. Every closet, under every bed. Every <laughs> every corner of every room. We need to add more bookshelves, by the way. We do. There, there up there. There, on top <laughs> of the fan blades. If we could get books that wouldn't slide off. Yeah, if you are like us, dear listener, then you know the problem of which we speak, which is that books, when you leave them alone, they multiply. They begin to have love relationships, and before you know it, you have little books that you know show up on your shelves, and you have no idea where they came from, uh, and you just can't stop it. You can't stop it. Old books, new books, red books, blue books, one fish, two fish. It's just they they multiply. Uh, so, so we wanted to talk about the library because we really believe that, that that is the type of house that you should be aiming for, the type of house where you're always needing more shelves. Where you're, you know, Thomas Chalmers, I'm sorry, it's not cheap. I have another good quote about yeah, that. Let's, says, let's hear it. A little library growing every year is an honorable part of a man's history. It is a man's duty to have books. A library is not a luxury, but one of the necessity, necessaries of life. Be certain that your house is adequately and properly furnished with books rather than with furniture. <laughs> Both if wow. you can, you can, but books at any rate. Edward, Ed- <laughs> Edward, <laughs> we were having a hard time reading quotes tonight. It's We're re- recording it's late. late for it's us. Late. It's late. Henry Ward Beecher. Quoted from Shelf Life by George Grant <laughs> yes. and Karen Grant. <laughs> yeah, you missed our whole discussion on citations. We talked about properly citing to- a quote that you got from <clears throat> a book. And the importance of sharing the book name. You know so, what? You know, it's not stolen you valor. would have been a technical writer in college. And I still would have been a creative oh, writer. Oh, <laughs> technical writing. Yeah, that's true. It's that's true. your personality. It's true, friends. It's true. 
So uh, the first category we wanted to take up in talking through this issue of the library and the household library is just books as inheritance. Books as an inheritance to your children. And one of the... You know I'm yawning. One of the best inheritances that you can leave. And I think this is one that works on multiple levels because obviously the books themselves can be a great inheritance to your children, right? Like when you when you get a, a library of classics, my, my friend Dan, he's been collecting these, you know, it's a specific series of leather-bound classics. I, I can't remember the name of the... Is it the Everyman's Classics series? I honestly can't Collins? remember. There's okay. a name for it, and they're collectible. He started collecting them a few years ago when they were about him. $25 to $30 a book. Well, since 2020, they've gone up. They're 130 to 140 dollars. Are they newer now. publications? I can't remember. They're, okay. they're classic. I'll, they're I'll they're leather bound classics. They're very beautiful. They all look thematically similar, and uh, he's got a great library there in his house. Uh, so, so obviously, when you when you spend a lifetime devoted to collecting not dime store novels, we're not talking about just like collecting twaddle and as much as you put, you know, as many pages as you can. But when you curate over decades of life, you can give an inheritance to your children in a library that's very rich. Mm -hmm. But also, beyond that, allowing your children to grow up in a home full of books gives them a certain kind of inheritance mm -hmm. that is more than just the book itself. Yeah. I it's think, the type of person they become. Yeah, I, this quote, when I was reading it, it was really interesting to me that you're talking about it this way because I hadn't connected it, but it was like the description of everything I was looking for in a book as a child. Mm -hmm. This is actually an F. Scott Fitzgerald quote, but it says, that is a part of the beauty of literature. You discover that your longings are universal longings, that you're not alive and isolated from anyone. You belong. The literary environment then ought to be a manifestation of that commonality, that community with full and tangible reminders in the very decor. Mm. and it's like that they're they have the nostalgia they have the longing for a heavenly place and you're cultivating that with books mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways yeah we we're christians and what that means is that you know we are an inscripturated people mm -hmm. we are a people who are a, a people of words christ is the logos he is the word become flesh uh, in the last days, in the former times, God spoke to us by his prophets, and in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Creation is speech. Uh, his, his scriptures are words to us. We're people of a book. So Christians have always been a people with a deep and abiding concern for words and mm -hmm. books, even before the Gutenberg press. Christians yeah. were the ones who were preserving even the works of the pagans. Yep. Christians were the ones in monasteries and in the, the the classical, at what we would now look back as the classical education system, basically how the church was pivotal in educating noblemen and the clergy, the main uh, education system, which was really an extension, a continuation, a refinement, and inheriting of the Roman and Greek education system of rhetoric, which was also deeply concerned with words. Christians took hold of that, and they recognized how essential words were going to be and the preservation of books and learning and scrolls. And so Christians were the ones who were copying manuscripts, preserving libraries, you can read, you know, many, many uh, early works in Christian history are even concerned with uh, 
listing out what books you should be reading. Mm. I remember some of hmm. the, you know, some of the books that we studied in Dr. Schlecht's class at New St. Andrews on the history of classical Christian education. Some of the some of the works we were reading, it was kind of meta. It was like a picture in a picture kind of thing. They were books in the classical tradition that were authors from, you know, antiquity talking about what books you should read from That's antiquity. Cool. And they're explaining in each category, hey, you've got to get this book on this book of the Bible. You've got to get this guy's commentary. You got to get this science book. Christians have always been concerned with this. That sounds so lovely. Because, I mean, we're, we're a people who we, we serve a God who has revealed himself to human beings in words. So this isn't optional. This isn't optional. Yeah. Um, now, now <clears throat> as we talk about books as an inheritance, one of the things that you immediately run into, and I've already sort of waved a hand at it a little bit, is we're not talking about... We've all, I think we've all had a relative or we've been in a house where it's full of books, but they're not good books. Like every sci-fi book ever written or... <laughs> You know, just books of like the Nora Roberts, Nicholas Sparks, uh, the lowest, even in even the worst. Oh my gosh! Like that oh worse. my goodness! By the way, okay, let's hear it. George Grant made an excellent case for <laughs> shopping at local bookstores because he was saying if people have lowbrow taste, I, I think it's even worse than oh, lowbrow. Yeah, they'll to get be rid honest. of their good books. No. He said, you don't want to be supporting a company that's making most of their money off of dirty, cheap romance novels. So stop going to Walmart and Barnes and Noble to buy your books. <laughs> and I buy was them like, secondhand. Oh shoot! Then no, the he was saying like money. just get to a local bookstore where the the owner actually loves books, not money. Oh, I get what you're saying. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh man, that's so true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah, because we get what we we get what we want in a sense. Like yeah, he, society will uh, reward what is desired. What's desired? So, do we want to talk about how libraries get rid of their books and how they're dumbing us all down? Yeah, let's talk about <laughs> that because this in this section of the podcast, if there were timestamps, this would be on the merits of being a book snob. One thing I'm going to say before we get into this, uh-huh. and that is that many of you have asked, like show notes, like can you write down all the resources we share in each episode? Look, here's the thing: number one, we do share those on Patreon. Because it's an extra amount of work to yeah, do. Yeah, it is. A I lot have to of work. sit down and and then like, sometimes do an Lexi just deletes do. it by accident. That also <laughs> does happen sometimes. <laughs> Through no fault of her own, she fully, due to her own responsibility, deletes it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just that Lexi is a person of books, not technology. So <laughs> she doesn't know how. Like I showed her friends the other day how Finder works on Mac, which <laughs> is the whole way that you find files. <laughs> I was like, how don't you reveal my secret. Okay. Anyway, moving on. So here's the thing: we're going to talk about a lot of books in this. In this one, we're not going to put them all there on the Patreon episode. You know, patrons who contribute to the show help make it possible. We try to share detailed resource lists with each episode, um, but even there, patrons, I'm going to do my best to keep track of everything we mention. But a lot he's of these got, we just mention off the cuff. He's got. I've got a like list going 30. already, so we're trying. So anyway, on the merits of being a book snob. We're talking about twaddle versus worthy books. How do you figure those out? How and, and you've you mentioned libraries and how they get mm-hmm. rid of, like how libraries basically guarantee that they're going to have bad books. Public libraries, public do. libraries, right? Public libraries. Yes, yeah. So I don't know how it works. 
everywhere, but in like our local library system, there's library sales at each branch every summer. And one of my friends one year kind of asked him like, how do you decide what books to get rid of? And they said, oh, well, every year we go through and see which ones haven't been checked out in the last. They have like a certain time marker on it. Yeah. Like I think it's 12 to like 48 months or something. And they just get rid of those books. But what happens when your body of readers becomes more and more illiterate and to be frank, dumber and dumber. Yeah. And is uninterested in the classics. What happens into your public library system? They get dumber and dumber. They just get filled with more and more twaddle. Yeah. And also there's no like there's no skin in the game for us anymore because we're not I mean, really we are paying for our taxes are paying for the public libraries. But I think Christians need to move back towards private libraries. The way private libraries kind of worked was you saw the character of a person, you saw the culture that was coming out of their work and out of their home and out of their family, and you were willing, kind of like Patreon in a way, you mm -hmm. were willing to pay for access to their private library because you wanted access to the books that shaped them and their family and their culture and their home. Yeah, And I think that's how and i i know within like the charlotte mason realm that is something like private living books libraries um but i think that's kind of how we need to go because what can happen too is if you are a reader and your family is willing to invest in good money in rare books even just normal money and lots of books is yeah. still a lot of money and you start loaning out your books to friends that aren't actually readers but they say hey let me borrow that yeah <laughs> And then suddenly you have lots of books go missing that you've spent lots of money on. And I mean, let's just do the math here. Let's say you got two two good readers in your house. There's going to yep. be more. Okay, two, and you read one book per week. Yep. Times fifty two, and let's say the average book you get a deal is ten dollars. I mean, books are more than that usually. Yeah. But even that adds up to a thousand dollars plus a year for just two readers buying and going through a book a week. Yeah. So you can see in most so, houses that's like a. a Big percentage of yeah. the yearly disposable income. Oh, yeah. Right there. I had to track down one book that was like over a thousand. Like I I didn't, it was gifted to me yeah. by your father actually who found a smoking deal on it. Yeah. And I didn't even know until after the fact that it was over a thousand dollars. He did not pay that much. But then I loaned it out to somebody for like over a year and I had to track that sucker down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So when we're talking about um, you know, the, the, the library in the house, we actually do hope that in communities across the, you know, the world, wherever Christians are and wherever Christians are putting down roots and building fruitful, industrious communities, we would love to see it become more and more normal for private libraries mm -hmm. to be established, whether by Christians or, mm -hmm. you know, a group in the church or a room We're in the church. We're working on one. We're working, We're working on one. On one. We're working on one behind the organ at our church or somewhere in our church. We're, we're early stage in that, but because it it does, it protects... C.S. Lewis in his book, An Experiment on Criticism, he talks about how a culture develops a, a taste for badness, <laughs> like uh, yeah. where they develop a taste for bad books. And so you kind of, you know, he talks about letting the, the breeze of the centuries sort of come through your house by way of these old books. But mm -hmm. the thing is... Good books tend to be work. Yeah. Just, it's like food. I mean, a lot of the food that is the easiest in our culture is not necessarily Nutrient great. Dense. You know, it's like, here's this prepackaged, it's easy, it's approachable to anybody without any sophisticated palate. 
And instead of that, it's like we're saying you should be eating like, oh, I can now appreciate the glory of this cheese that was an artisan sheep's milk cheese or and obviously not everybody's going to approach it first taste and be like i love this not everybody's going to read dostoevsky first time and go that was pleasurable because sometimes authors who are writing excellent books are not trying to make it pleasurable they're trying to disturb you or move you or change you most of wendell berry's books are that for me where Mm -hmm. 99.5 of the book was kind of dusty and dry. Yeah. And then there's like a life-changing literal maybe paragraph. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's common in especially, you know, when you've grown up in a public schooling system. I grew up in a public schooling system. And so I just, I read on my own a tremendous amount. And I've always read a yeah. lot. But I remember like if, how easy it would be to have come to hate books, hate good books. Mm. Because even classics that we dealt with, they were dealt with in such a ham-fisted and dull way. Yeah, but we don't even deal with classics anymore. Like, they're all modern classics. Yeah, I read a we lot of books rarely... from, in, you know, like French class, I read Dumas and a lot of those books. Yeah. They, were, they, were least, they were least old, but like American fiction and things like that, American classics are not actually very good. Depends on who you ask. What if I asked you? <laughs> what if I was asking you? I have higher you? opinions now than I did two years ago, probably. What's your favorite it? American novel? Um, Favorite American novel? Mm-hmm. Well, I like... It's Fitzgerald for sure. No. No, kidding. absolutely not. I know she doesn't like it. Um, why can't I remember her name? I'll come back. We almost named her child. Oh. E.W. Why can't I remember? Oh, Pioneer's... Oh, oh, Willa Cather. Yeah, Willa, Willa Cather. Yeah, uh, yeah Willa she's Cather, probably one of my favorites. Yes, and Wendell Berry. I love Wendell yeah. Berry. So, so our goal is to become book snobs in the best possible way, not in a not in a in elitist sort of way, but in a way where we would be cultivating a taste for books that will do us good, and that will be the the best books at shaping our notions of the good and the true and the beautiful. The, that will be the best books at shaping our hatred of evil, our full bore looking at evil as evil and the bleakness of evil. I think of something like Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, which is a book I absolutely hate in the sense that I hate to read it. Did you read it? Yes, but it's absolutely a book that made me miserable while I read it, and I realized as I read it that that actually was what he was trying to do. Dan told me I needed to read it. Yeah, I mean, it's a book that's about the nature of guilt. And and through the book, Dostoevsky is just a master of making you experience the guilt of the protagonist. And I won't give away the, the story, but I think that- it, it makes you increasingly anxious and you just feel, and, and what it does by the end is you actually have come, you've been brought to understand something about the nature of guilt and shame mm-hmm. and you know crime and punishment, but also about redemption that is... 10 times more powerful than if you had been allowed as the reader to be comfortable the whole time. Mm. You know, so we have to be yeah. cultivating a taste for books that will actually do us good mm-hmm. over time. So how do we do that? How do we develop a culture of reading? How do we develop a culture of reading good books? And I'm talking about for adults and for our children. What do you, what do you think about Like how that? have I personally gone about it? Yeah, how do we do that? What's the um, or, or how would one do that? So the ways I went about it was who were the like most widely read people that I knew. And so 
Okay, so yeah. first of all, I, I also grew up reading mm-hmm. voraciously, but it was crap literature. Nobody handed me Elizabeth Elliot till I was in college. I was shocked that nobody told me about mm-hmm. her. And I think Little House on the Prairie was maybe the best literature I read growing up, like fiction. So then I had two boys and I was starting to homeschool and I virtually realized like I have had the poorest education in some ways. The smartest people that I have gravitated towards that have shaped my active reading list have been Doug Wilson, yeah, Goodreads. I love Goodreads. I have tracked reading way better on there than I ever have before. Goodreads, my friend Kelly. Yeah, Cheerful Reader me a lot. on Twitter, at Cheerful Reader. <laughs> Kelly is, um, so this is, <laughs> Kelly's going to be flattered here. I was going to say, Douglas Wilson is one of the best, the most widely read pastors I'm aware of. In, in the world, I think. C.R. Wiley said that too. He said, you know, talking to Doug, he's one of the wi- most widely read pastors. I would also say George Grant yeah. as well. But cheerful reader, Kelly. Yeah. Kelly. Somebody she's requested, one of the most widely somebody read Somebody messaged me and was like, hey, you mentioned maybe recording an episode with Kelly on Sugar. You should really do that. <laughs> yeah, we, should, we really should. <laughs> okay, so. We should figure it out. Douglas Wilson, Andrew Kern, and George Grant. I like them all because they all talk about how they've made their reading lists in different places. Yeah. I tried to find the lecture because I was actually talking to Jerry Kahn about it the other day. He did some lecture. If someone can find it, I think it was NSA. It might have been a podcast where he was talking about long distance education, but he was talking about it as a modern looking at the ancient classics as long distance education. Yeah. I can't remember where it was, but he actively gave his canon of books I wrote it down. I still have it in my binder of goals. Mm-hmm. I combined that with the one that Andrew Kern created for himself. Mm. And over the years, that's what I've been working from. I have made it through very few of those books, but more books than if I had never made a list. And most recently, over the last year, I've been working through a lot of George Grant's personal books. Like, he doesn't have a canon that I'm aware of, but his books, he's such a book nerd that his yeah. books are filled with other other books other books that's so how you find books. that's what i was going to say too is follow the follow the footnotes the follow footnotes. the bibliographies and this helps you have a wider it helps you dig deeper while you're digging wider as well yeah. like if, if there's a quote about something say i'm reading a book about oh, i'm trying to think let's see I was reading a book about etiquette okay yeah and there was a quote in there about how christianity we see the evidence of Christianity through the spread of Western culture because of etiquette. And I was like, oh, that's a really good quote. Where did that come from? A book called The Spread of Western Culture. So I've been making my way, as I read the etiquette book, I then started making my way through this understanding of the spread of Western culture and etiquette from a historical perspective. Yeah. And it helps you, it just helps give you a rounder education, more robust y- yeah. education. You're tugging on threads and you find out that many books even I would say most books, and, and I'm talking maybe mostly outside of the world of fiction, but most book, really good nonfiction books are the distillation and the they're they're like a, a, a recipe that was made with ingredients from 50 other books. Mm-hmm. And so you're getting like this kaleidoscope and collage of 50 other books when you're reading a good book. Yeah. And you start following them back and then you find this other book and then that's a kaleidoscope and a, and a collage of yep. 50 other books. Yep. And you realize pretty quickly that you're going to die with with most of the good books left unread. Yeah, there's just so many. There's, there's so, so many. many. I just was reading through my good lit, mm-hmm. my Goodreads 
to read lists and I was like, oh man, these are so amazing. I can't wait until mm. it's snowing out and I don't ever have to go outside yeah. and water a tomato plant again. <laughs> so, so really that's, that's honestly, I think if you're going to take the single biggest, you know, method for cultivating a culture of reading and reading the, the developing a taste for the best books, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. No, you start with nope. people who are widely read and who are, I think we've talked about this before, but who are, you find interesting people and you will find that interesting people are interested people. They're interested in the world. And so they're probably readers and they're probably doers. Mm -hmm. They're probably people who read and they're practitioners usually. And that means that they're going to have a lot of places where you can start. And then you just start tracing it back and uh, you'll never C.S. Lewis, I tried to follow this for a few years. He has that rule of like for every... Is it for every one modern book you read, you should read three old books that yeah, are at least over a hundred like years yeah. old or something? I think that's I, I do set yearly reading goals for myself of a variety of kinds. And I, I do think that's a good thing for people to consider doing. If you you think about um this that reminded me, I was looking it up. Lewis wrote it's one of his scholarly works in his field of scholarly studies where he was really an expert. Mm -hmm. His book, English Literature in the 16th Century, Excluding Drama. The way that wow. Lewis wrote that book, that what he started doing, he started by reading every work of English literature other than drama that, he, that was available in the 16th century. Like he literally mm -hmm. read all of them. That's a guy that you're going to go, Lewis, tell me what I should read. From yeah, 16, yeah, exactly. Because exactly. he's he's gone down the well. I mean, he's scraped the bottom at that point. And you're gonna find people like that where where you're gonna be able to like George Grant is an example where you can tell he's scraped the bottom. I mean, he's gone deep on certain historical subjects, and he's also read very widely, which we're gonna talk about. In fact, maybe we should moving into that. One of one of the things that we really believe is that if you want to develop a culture of reading. And you want to help your children, you know, your household and your children develop a culture of reading. You need to personally read widely and encourage your children encourage to wide read reading, widely. Yeah. So what do we mean by that and why? I mean, everybody, even if you like books, you're going to go the easy route. Right. You're going to go the pop fiction route. You're going yeah. to go the... Or even some people who are on the other spectrum which was me for a couple years as an adult was like only nonfiction and never fiction yeah only theology yeah 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 so really start challenging yourself and setting goals outside of what you typically read mm -hmm. and if you typically read only crossway well maybe you need to pull some canon press or reformation yeah. press reformation heritage press or if you only read c.s lewis maybe you need to pull some thomas aquinas and Chesterton or something, you know. Yeah, exactly. Maybe you need to get in, you need to say I'm I'm going to make a goal of reading a biography of an American president every yeah. year for the, you know, something like something that's totally outside of your wheelhouse. Yeah. Like I know you realize all the time if you're if you're doing life right, you'll be realizing just about every day something you know very little about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you, you'll run into the edges of your knowledge all the time and, and you'll just realize, wow, I I don't know about the Civil War. So this is a huge event in American history. I, wow, I don't know about like what what was World War One all about, or you know, and hopefully you guys know those things. But I mean, maybe you you look back and you go, I can't name any of the kings or queens of England. You know, I can't name what what was Charlemagne about. What what who 
or the Romans, the Greek and Roman period. And you just start to realize, I know very little. And that was just history, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) So when we're talking about reading widely, this is one of the things that helps you become an interesting person, which is an interested person in the world God made and the story he's telling in history. It's also a way that you can avoid boredom and just getting in a rut where you're like, wow, I've eaten oatmeal every day for the mm-hmm. last, and I loved oatmeal the first two weeks, and now I'm 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 sick and tired of it. And so I'm going to do the easy thing. I'm going to watch television, you know, like yeah. easy. When we're talking about reading widely, we're saying that you should intentionally read in genres that are outside of your normal wheelhouse. So some examples would be history. You should pick up a Paul Johnson book, read... Um, the American History of the American People, I think it's called. Herodotus. Herodotus, uh, Eusebius Church History. You should read some biographies, pick up the Last Lion series, and then um, read The Unnecessary War after that, Buchanan, and get a good rounded picture of where Winston Churchill maybe wasn't quite honest about his own story. You'd read theology books, and I'm talking about like Bavink, technical mm-hmm. theology, you know, that's that's good for you. It's good to stretch your brain. Applied theology, things like C.R. Wiley's Man of the House is an applied theology mm. book. Michael Foster's It's Good to Be a Man, that's an applied theology book. A lot of the, the stuff Canon does is really good applied yeah. theology. Cultural analysis books, I think, are very important. Society and culture. I was actually going to say, I think Canon, if you don't, if you can't afford books, the eight, what is it, eight ninety nine a month? It's, it's eight or twelve dollars a month, something like Canon's, that. Canon's Canon's canon of books that they have available right now is rocking and it's getting larger by the day. It's so, it's so you could just read, yes, exactly. Just read, listen through those books alone, and you will have an amazing education. Yeah. And you will talk about, I want to put a pin in that and talk about listening to books in a minute and and what my opinion is on what the best type of books to listen to are. Yeah. Apply theology. Think we, you talked about um, an etiquette book Mm -hmm. that's like a society and culture type of genre, um, science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I people probably, because I talk natural health all the time. Yeah. I did, I hated science. Mm-hmm. It was when the boys, it was again, when I was research, researching homeschooling that I realized I don't know anything about anything science. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't go at it from the perspective of like, oh, learn all the boring sciencey things like photosynthesis again. I thought, what is it that I'm interested in science-wise? And I'll dig deep while I'm also trying to go wide over some of the basics. Yeah. So I do still want to learn some of the basics. I want to read Mm -hmm. a basic anatomy book I haven't gotten to yet. But I've also figured out, I started with Annie Dillard, actually, Mm -hmm. Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, because I love creative writing. I love poetry. She wrote beautifully about trees, and that's how I got interested in science books. (laughs) And I do consider that science in a way. Oh, yeah, it is. Observational science. Like yep. We're talking about common science. Naturalism. Yeah, just everybody being a, 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 a naturalist yeah. in the best possible way. Science books, politics. You know, some people read only politics. Some people are like, ah, I don't want to read any politics. What, politics, what economics. What would you consider a politics book? Give me an example. Uh, one example would be like, you know, Stephen Wolf's writing book with Canon Press on Christian nationalism. It's going to oh, be very okay. much political the- theory. So like um, uh, the Sowell. Benedict option? Oh, okay, okay. Thomas Sowell writing on economics and politics. George Gilder? Yes, Gilder. I would put some of Anthony Eslin's work in the in the category of politics or were a combination of history and politics. Because, I mean, okay, when we're talking about politics, it's going to overlap with history so much. Yeah. Unless it's just pure theory. Or, you know, when we're, you could read, like, Burke. 
you can read uh, early American political works like John Locke. And, you know, some of these things are going to be very helpful in um, understanding your own place in history. Art, architecture. Um, some of the episodes we've done have been the fruit of Lexi reading lots of art and architecture books. Classics. Again, just looking at, you can find lists everywhere of what are the classics, what are the canon of Western literature, and just start mining it. I think, you know, some of the definitive lists are upwards of 2,000 books. So there's, you're not going to hit the end of that. And then f things like fiction. And some people just reach for fiction. Some people, like Lexi was saying, actually err the other way and never read fiction. But you should read fiction. And you should read fiction that is both like mentally, you should be reading, not all the fiction, I'll put it this way, not all the fiction you read should be a slog. Correct. I do a have- A hard like, oh, Moby Dick is, you know, I've got to read it. It's a classic. And then you're like, this is actually a hard book to read. I not have a list like of um, books to read that are like in my head. It's like the cozy domestic novels. Yes. <laughs> They're like, oh, you know, sometimes you go on a long walk and sometimes you do really heavy lifting. And it's like, you got to do both. But that really isn't most of my books. You know, that's yeah. a few books a year, maybe. And and honestly, I would even put, for me, some like reading biographies or certain works of history are in that category for me of just, these are fun. I like to read them. I'm very interested in it. It's not work. Anthony Esselin, reading him is like. So good. Oh, it's so good. It's just, and, and good authors should be enjoyable to read. Um, that You shouldn't just say like cultivating good taste does actually require you to do hard work and cultivate a taste, but it's okay to say, I don't like American 20th century fiction. As long as you know why. If you can say why, <laughs> like, I don't like, I don't like the worldview it's coming from. I don't, I, I, I don't, I just don't like it. I don't think it's but good. But even still now I'm like, it makes me feel icky and I know why and I value it now, even though I don't like it. I value it differently. Yeah, there's that category. Yeah. Like Dostoy, I don't like reading it. That I don't like I don't want to read Crime and Punishment again. But it'd be good for me. <laughs> so yes, you should be reading widely, develop a culture of reading. If you listen to some of the earlier episodes we've done on things like entertainment, you'll see, I think, as well how to in education, how to develop a culture of reading simply by making it easier to read than to do things that are less valuable than reading when the time comes for downtime. Like if it's really easy in your house for the television to turn on, you're probably not going to develop a culture of reading in your children. If your television is hidden in a closet somewhere and you have to scoot it out like every it time out. you want it and plug it in and find the DVD player, well... That's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> Your kids shouldn't be just like, oh, I'll just grab the iPad. It's available. So it shouldn't be the words. first option. Yeah, Lexi uh, developed this. I don't know if you came up with this or if you got it from somewhere I else. got it from, tons of people probably know about this. It's, but. Uh, yes, what, explain it, the read. Yeah, like the kids, if they want to watch something, and this isn't every day, the day that I decide to say yes, they have to read something build something, make something, clean something before they yeah. can watch something. So that doesn't mean like they do that every day in order to watch something. But some <laughs> days when I decide to say, yes, you can watch that. If you do these things, yep. well, that's what they have to do first then. Sometimes they try to pencil whip it and they're like, 
I organized this shoe. It took me two seconds. <laughs> I scribbled a, yeah. <laughs> a stick figure. <laughs> yeah. I read the back of the cereal box, and now I'm... Yeah. Not that we have cereal boxes, actually, now that I think about it. I was going back to my childhood. Oh, cereal. Anyway, <laughs> not good for you. Wow. One of the worst things you can eat, people. I did all the time. Anyway, anyway, reading widely. Reading widely helps develop a culture of reading. Um, let's get particular now. Okay. We, we wanted to talk a little bit about some books that we'd recommend for boys, books for girls, we'd recommend in general. And then Lexi and I are going to do, every week we record an, an episode that's just available through our Patreon channel for patrons who support the show called In the Kitchen. And on that one, we're going to be sharing a few of our favorites, books that have, how did you say books? That uh, had, I think we said like life-changing books. What yeah. were the most life-changing books? Yeah, so we're going to talk about life-changing books there in the In the Kitchen episodes, things like, Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go <laughs> really changed my... I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, guys. So let's talk about some books for boys. You know, because one of the best ways to get your children to love to read is by just giving them the best books and saying, trust me, pretty soon we'll be having to tell you you can't read at the dinner table. Yeah, that has been happening lately. <laughs> it really has. More than usual. And some kids are different than others. We have one one boy in particular who's like, he, he's me. He was me. He's like a clone of myself. So when I was his age on up, I got in, when I got in trouble at school, it was for reading under the desk, <laughs> not texting. Well, until we started dating. <laughs> and then I did get in trouble for this was on the old T9. You know, you had to click, 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 Let's talk about some bo some books for boys. Uh, Lexi, what comes to mind first for you when you're thinking about books for boys? I have a lot, but... The My Side of the Mountain. Yep. My Side of the Mountain series, trilogy. Oh, who was that? George Craighead. Gene Craighead George. Gene Craighead George, George yes. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I didn't look the that Hobbit, up, I'm pretty sure. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, your standards. Harry Potter. Um, I think Ari's even read some of the children. Uh, Iliad... In the Odyssey. Yep. I, I really, the Iliad, so I had read the Odyssey multiple times when I read it as an adult. I had never read the Iliad. And so it was like one big pep talk for men. Yeah. And I think that's so good for boys. Yes. So, yeah. They have some good children's editions out there. Absolutely. In, in books in general that have a lot of adventure that feature boys working a, a hard, you know, to reach a hard goal. Boys that are boys and men who are going into the wilderness. Books that feature hardship and triumph. Books that feature danger and conquest. These are books that boys are naturally going to love. I think of f an older kid books like the Count of Monte Cristo, Alexandre Dumas, yeah, I love also that the book. Three Musketeers from him. That, that that he's one of the few authors, by the way. Don't be turned off if you see that you're having a bridged version. Almost every version of Dumas' books that you'll find are going to be abridged. It's be because of the language. Well, it was because so he wrote in French originally, and he he actually wrote several of his books. I think he wrote The Count of Monte Cristo as a serial first. So he published a chapter a week in a newspaper. 
kind oh, of publishing okay. model. I think Mark Twain did that a lot. Yes, it, it was common. And so the way what would happen though is that in order to keep it going, he would spin off these plots, subplots that are oh, totally irrelevant, literally complete new characters. And so like the, the, the Count of Monte Cristo unabridged is still like a thousand pages and it's very good. You're not actually, they, they've taken out some of those side plots. Uh, I would say th- those, that's an older book. I read those many times growing up. I actually ended up in my French class, my best, my favorite year of a foreign language was the the highest French class I took. We were the first French class in that school. There were only three of us. So we were embedded in a younger class and we kind of just got to read books and and I read The Three Musketeers in French. And it was one of the coolest, it was really hard because I had to look up stuff all the time and figure it out. But um, That's cool. I didn't know that. I love his books. I, and that might just could be because I have a soft spot for him, but they're very boy books. I think David Copperfield, anyone who's read David Copperfield would know why, but that was such a good book that I wish I had, I've, I would have heard recommended more for boys. I've heard similar things for Oliver Twist. I think that is Mark Twain, right? Look Oliver up. Twist? Isn't yeah. that Dickens? Charles Dickens. Dickens. Charles Dickens. I'm sorry. Charles yeah. Dickens. Wrong. Yeah, I know. I know. Wrong country. The Victorian era for boys was really hard. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I think it's good for boys to know that. But David Copperfield specifically was also good to see like what happens when a foolish boy, when a boy marries a foolish woman, what yeah. happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that whole book, oh. I think that's one of my yeah. favorite classics I've ever read. Historical fiction in general, like Johnny Tremaine, or even him, historical retellings that are fictionalized in some ways can be really good for boys from different eras. I think Mark Twain in general, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn. The reason books like that can be so good is because it really stretches a young lad as he's reading to figure out the vernacular and time and place of of a like a time and place gone by. Yeah, that's true. And you end up learning along the way quite a bit. Just you figure things out from the context where you like figure out what a Jew's harp is and you figure out what, you know, all these random cultural references from 19th century America from Twain. They're also very Boy, I mean, their adventures on a river. There's freedom. I know. I thought Ari would have a hard time reading it when he read it last year, but he's read multiple of Mark Twain's books multiple times, including his more obscure books. And I'm like, Life on the Mississippi. And and I read uh, Tom Sawyer aloud to the children recently, and some of it does go over some of their heads because so funny. Mark Twain's so funny, (laughs) but some of his humor is is sophisticated for a little person. But I would say things like Swiss Family Robinson. Swiss Family Robinson is such a wholesome book because it's just like this absolutely based uh, reformed family gets shipwrecked and they're just continually, the father's continually saying like, Franz, Hans, let us kneel and thank the Lord for, you know, it's very Christian overtly, yeah. but also adventure building. And it's the it's it's just so, so good. I read that book probably 15 or 20 times growing up. Where the Red Fern Grows. Oh, yeah. Just will make you... She had a single man tear. Not like a severe mercy, but whatever. <laughs> okay, all right. Here we go. Here we go. You know, I'm just going to move on. Uh, Jack London. I would say even though Jack London was not a good person, oh. his, his books were, uh, I really enjoyed them as a young lad. Robinson Crusoe. Arthur Ransom, Swallows and Amazons. 
is a really good series. I actually found that that series originally because it was recommended to me for examples of good sibling relationships in books. Yes, good. And and, and all these books for boys, they're good for reading to the whole family. Girls will enjoy a lot of these books too. It's just these books are particularly wired for, easy, for boys. I actually think it's easier to find books for boys and girls. That's just definitely my easier. personal opinion. E. Nesbitt, uh, Edith, I think Edith Nesbitt, yes. but she goes by E. Nesbitt a lot. Great, funny author, a lot of British kind of she flavor. She's one of C.S. Lewis's favorite authors. Five Children and It is a great book. What's the rail? Is it Railway Children? That yeah, she Railway wrote? Children. Um, you could read, I, I loved, and I actually didn't read these until very recently, but I loved reading all the Sherlock Holmes books. And I suspect that lads of uh, many yeah, of the young I, persuasion I would those love those. Ari. I read they're those when I was short. younger, actually. They're, they're very, just, they're fun. They're fun yeah. reads. And, and they're, they're difficult enough just because they're older that they would be a good stretch for uh, a, a lad. You mentioned George Grant's history series that. Ari's reading right yeah. now. What is that? Is it just like I don't know short if it books actually, for children? I, I, I have them. I can't go grab them. Yeah. Carry a big stick. So he he read one about Teddy Roosevelt, and he has one on Churchill that he's going to start. Mm. Doug wrote one on Anne Bradstreet. Mm, okay. I think it's... Uh, is it a canon it series? No. It... Oh, gosh. I think George Grant was the editor of it. He wrote several of them, and then he asked other people to write them, but it's, I think it's like the subtitle is heroic Christian leaders or leaders in history or something. Yeah. It's about, it's about leadership. Mm. So it's, it's really, really good though. Ari, um, and they're really short chapters. So I feel like they can help you feel like you're gaining momentum quickly as a young boy, but that's kind of one of the first non, I don't know if Ari has read a biography before that. So it was an easy win for him to dip yeah. his toe into a new, you know. And I know yep. Kim said Chase has read some of them and really likes them. Ambleside uses a lot of his yeah. those. Ambleside Online ha- is a is a wealth of material that's, on book lists. When I started reading widely, that's what I referenced was Ambleside. You can also look online at Logos School, uh, which is an ACCS school in Moscow, Idaho. It's you know the one Doug Wilson founded, and they have a lot of their curriculum reading lists up for like. Uh, extracurricular reading for their different grade levels. Those are great lists of books. If you look just in general at rigorous Christian school curriculums, you'll find that they're made up of a lot of books that are just great reads in general, especially when you get into their free read stuff. So so moving to girls, because we don't want to you know go on all day. Again, we could do like three-hour episode on the library. We, do, we could do 50 episodes. Let's talk about some girl books, because they are much harder. Yeah. I think they're way harder. Because boys, it's so obvious. You're like, okay, does someone like go dig in the mud with a stick? Do they fish? Okay, a boy will like it. Are there guns? <laughs> oh, Andy Wilson. Ashtown Burials, 100 Cupboards. Any, I'm just willing to say any Andy Wilson fiction book will be good for boys or girls. But boys especially will love them. He's just one of my favorite living authors. Anyway, girls, Little House on the Prairie. Little House. B- books that portray domesticity in a... Yeah. In a I like Anne of Green Gables, too. That was mm-hmm. a really good series. There's a lot of books in that series, too, so that always helps with a reader. Yeah. Let's see, what the else? The Tinker's Daughter, a story based oh, yeah. on the life of the young Mary Bunyan by yes, Wendy Lawton. Actually, 
Jordan and I on the Fruitful and Fearless a couple years ago, we interviewed Becky Pliego and we interviewed her for specifically about books for girls. And this was one that she had recommended that I had never heard of before. Mm, I've never heard of it. So it's about um, Paul, not Paul, Paul Bunyan. Bu- wow. Is it Paul Bunyan? Mary Bunyan? John, wait, 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 wait. This is embarrassing. <laughs> it's John Bunyan. It's John Bunyan. You guys, it's, oh, no. it is minutes before 10 here. Which is actually I'm midnight. When you're over 30, <laughs> that's actually midnight. Um, it is Paul, it, it's not Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan is, I can't believe it. <laughs> Paul Bunyan is like the tall. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. <laughs> Let's move on. Ray, can you make us sound smarter? He's like, that's the one thing I can't do, guys. I'm sorry. Um, I can't make you sound smarter. I can only I, make you EQ'd better. I believe it was about when her dad was in jail, if I'm remembering correctly, and just like how he, she handled that and navigated that because her father was imprisoned for his Christianity. Mm, okay, yeah. If yep, I'm yep, remembering yep, yep, correctly. Yeah, yes, you're right. For preaching without a license. Yes. Yes. And I think that's when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. So anyways, it's about his daughter. Radiant. 50 Remarkable Women in Church History by Richard Hanula. Yeah, I think that's a good one to... Great book. You want... Show ladies that God uses, literally, he has used queens... Courageous. Throughout women. history, for the good of Christians, yeah. specifically because they're so beautiful that their pagan husbands want to do whatever they say. We, <laughs> we are huge fans of well-educated, courageous, strong women. Yeah. And raising courageous, strong, well-read... Highly intelligent, careful thinking, good theologian women. I mean, when people think about like the the word we say the word patriarchy positively, there are types of patriarchal camps that are like, why would you need a woman to be educated? She's yeah. just gonna be in the kitchen. She just needs to know how to cook. I'm like, no, no, she's going to be educating your children. Yeah. She's going to be educating your children, even if she's not homeschooling, even if you have a great private yeah. Christian school, she's still going to be instrumental in educating your your children and demonstrating to them and like and she needs the virtue for like lots of small and long faithfulness in the home and a lot of that comes through reading these good stories i'm not going to remember the reference right now which is sad but even in the classical christian tradition particularly after the protestant reformation there was one man who was uh very instrumental in the world of Protestant classical Christian education who took and applied the priesthood of all believers principle and in set and basically concluded what we need are for all Christians to be educated, boys and girls, not just clergy and noblemen, all because of the priesthood of all believers, this Protestant doc foundational Protestant doctrine, yeah, we need to educate all of our people. And so this is a part of our theological heritage as Protestant and Reformed Christians that we we believe that every Christian ought to be a person of the book, ought to be able to handle mm-hmm. um, the, the Scripture, is not to be able to think deeply. So we want our, our girls to read read well. Obvi- uh, there was another book, Miss Read Books by Miss Read. Yeah, I would say that's kind of one of those categories of cozy domestic novel mm-hmm. for me, kind of in addition to Jan, Karen, and I'm trying to think of some others. Can't Jan, wait. Karen? Yes, I believe that is how you say it. I've no, actually I'm... never heard it said because I've yeah. only seen it tweeted at me. <laughs> <laughs> That's welcome to the world of the autodidact. You pronounce things wrong because you only have yeah. ever read them. Maybe it's yawn. Could be yawn. Could be a man. <laughs> That's 
that is what it is right there in the um, search bar. Let me see. Jan K- So J-A-N-K-A-R-O-N. I know y'all have seen these books. Okay. They're everywhere. What so. books are they? Um, it's like the Mitford series books. Okay. Very cozy, sweet. Um, Pride and Prejudice. Yep. Another great book. Oh, that's Yeah, that's such a good... Talk about uneducated women. Absolutely. Like it just shows <laughs> Silly you... Silly ladies. What I love about Pride and Prejudice is it shows you... I'm going to talk about this in a, in our in the kitchen, but it shows you um, a woman there? repenting, yeah, of her sin against a man. Which is, I know that sounds crazy. That is a theme that is completely absent from our modern world of storytelling, because we hate men, you know. So, and, and because women, we treat women as gods. So, you know, a woman repents of her sin. So do men in the book. Like there are foolish men too. There are also foolish women in that book. But then also it shows you at by the end what a wise woman would yeah, look like. Yeah, she totally, yeah. Who builds her house. That's such a good book. And makes peace. Like all of these great reconciles across sin, deals with um, trial. It's just such a good book. Also, it's hilarious. Stepping Heavenward is another good one. It's kind of like a, a girl's biography as she's, I think, before she's married all the way into having adult children and just oh man, the ups and downs of sanctification and all the different seasons of life as a woman. Mm. It's very relatable. Yes. Um, I think we're going to end it. We're, we're, we're wax. It's going to get Yeah, long. we need to. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to call it here. So let, let me leave it with this. And I would say that wherever you are, you know, whether you have small book budget or not, you know, you should be aiming to fill your house with good books Fill your mind, fill your heart, fill your house with good books. Because we're Christians, because we're people of the Word, we need to be a people who can think well, speak well, uh, and I would say even write well, and and be able to to process our thoughts in verbal forms, defend the faith, and to do that, you need to be able to read. You need to be you're going to need to be able to read widely, and also it will enrich your life if you're if you're not a reader it will enrich your life can i make a plug for commonplacing real quick yeah oh that's get a, great a notebook point. any passages that you find interesting maybe you won't ever use them again maybe you have practical use for them like we do with writing but copy that out because even just the act of copying it it's going to do something in your brain mentally to get it into your personhood into your character into your memory better yeah into your conversations over the next few days don't be a lazy reader. Be an active reader and get out your commonplace and take notes. Yeah, narrate and record. So, I mean, commonplacing and also narrating. If you if you come – this is so helpful if you're reading biography, fiction, like almost anything. But as I'm reading um, – oh, I forgot I was going to talk about listening to books too. So as I – I'll be giving an example so I can do two birds, one stone. I think listening to certain types of books can be very helpful – like I really enjoy listening to history, biography, and fiction. There are categories I don't enjoy listening to because I don't think I get as much out of them. Listening to things like theology and nonfiction, certain categories of theological nonfiction, I just don't retain as much, and reading is better. But when it comes to biography, history, fiction, I think listening can be a great way of intaking some of those things in times when you couldn't hold a book. Um, like when you're working out or driving. If you pause every once in a while or stop at the end of reading a chapter and just say back what you just read, you will find that you can retain so much more. I was reading, no, I was listening to The Unnecessary War 
Buchanan recently, which is a great book. You should all read it. It's about World War II. And I was trying to stop every once in a while and kind of narrate back, okay, so this is what happened. Churchill did this. There was this treaty. There was this. And I don't remember all of it, obviously, but it was like I just remembered so much more. And I've been able to discuss it with other people who have read it since then and retained a lot more. Yeah, that is a good idea if you're going to listen. really to helps if you're listening. And you don't have to do it with fiction necessarily, but um, if, you, if you're a biography, a history, anything like that, it will help you retain. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it was f- double yeah, what you probably. normally would. Especially with it. listening because we really don't retain as much when we're listening versus reading a book. No, it's not. So it's that not, would be a really good thing to... It's not, which is why I think it is. I gear my listening towards certain genres pretty much exclusively. I tried to listen to an, a, a Puritan theological work once. Oh, no, no. I, I probably it was. Literally became white noise within ten yeah. seconds. I was like, I can I can't do, do like this. modern applied theology, but sure, I can't do much else. Yeah, and like theology. I tried listening to Anthony Esselin, and it was just too pleasurable that I couldn't listen to it. Like I was <laughs> doing it an injustice by not just getting the book. It's and true. Enjoying the book. So I've listened to some Esselin, and it just I can't, makes me. I'm gonna have to get them. It just makes me want to own the book because I'm like, this is so good. I, I need to read it again. I don't. We have a couple of his books. We have one on Kindle that. Even the one that I read on Kindle and not in person, I'm so mad that I read it on Kindle because I can't go reference it easily. And it yeah. was such a life-changing book that yeah. I am very pro have the physical book. Yeah, me too. And and I am more than I used to be. It's true. <laughs> more than I used to be. Because so I, I I do like I the thing the thing is when you're writing sermons every week and things like that, Kindle is very helpful because I can search. So I like to have some of my commentary and theological library searchable since I can pinpoint passages. But for general reading, books are infinitely superior to Kindle. Infinitely superior. So that's my hot take for the day. Um, We're going to end it here. Thanks for listening, guys. Um, May we cause you to spend much money on books, and uh, may your shelves be ever bowed with the weight of them. 